Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, your Bibles or your devices. But let me encourage you to have the Scripture open in front of you. And partly to encourage you, my, I have a grandson who, who loves to cook. And when he's come to visit us, his favorite show to watch on television is the Great British Baking Show. And so I'd sit there and watch it with him. But, but I didn't particularly like to watch it because they bake and I get hungry and my mouth starts watering. And then they taste, then they taste their dessert or whatever it is they've baked. And, and I'm sitting there watching them taste it. Well, the Lord says that His Word is like bread, it's like meat, it's, it's our sustenance. And so don't just watch me taste the Word of God, but open your Bibles and follow along and keep it open and, and eat as we study this Word together. Listen to God's Word from Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. But... When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Again, please keep your Bibles open, and we're going to look especially at Galatians 2, verse 20. But let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as we reflect on this scripture, we pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit to open your word to our minds and hearts and to open our minds and hearts to your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. The Protestant Reformation was a time of great revival. The gospel had been rediscovered, and as people heard the gospel of free grace in Christ Jesus, of free salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, they came to life. And not only did people come to life spiritually, uh, but churches were reformed and began to, it was what we called the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there was even division among churches, division in the churches as people who followed the gospel came together to hear the gospel uh, so that they might continue to come to life and revitalize. And maybe the peak of that Reformation, uh, what, at least theologically, was the Westminster Assembly 
in England in the 1600s and that was probably the most mature theological expression of the truths that had been rediscovered in the time of the Reformation. And yet before even 50 years had passed, uh, people were struggling, Christians were struggling. For example, there was a pastor in England named Water Marshall, and he, everybody knew him as a faithful pastor, uh, but actually he was struggling to have a sense of security in his own salvation. He wondered if he was even saved. And his people were likewise struggling and languishing. What had gone wrong? Well, lawlessness and social discord had arisen. The names, uh, the, the game, the names change, but the games stay the same. Uh, just like our society, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of division, a lot of discord, a lot of dissension, a lot of lawlessness, even on the streets. And so to try to remedy that, uh, professing Christians, including Puritans, who were committed to the gospel, uh, had, they had started to focus their preaching on God's holy standards, on His laws. Uh, but alas, what they tended to do was reduce that to moralism, to do's and don'ts sort of separated from the gospel. It's good to do this, it's bad to do that. Moralism in its Christian guise holds that whether or not God accepts you depends in large part on how well you are doing spiritually. And without even re his realizing it, this moralism affected Pastor Marshall, it affected his preaching, ultimately it affected his congregation. So Pastor Marshall struggled with bouts of deep spiritual depression. And what's worse, the more he proclaimed God's holy laws to his people, the more he saw his people wilt and wither. Uh, they were trying to pursue holiness. They were trying to pursue Christ-likeness, uh, but it was driving them to despair. So Marshall began going to other pastors for advice and other Puritan pastors, and he'd tell them in great detail about the sins that were weighing so heavy on his own conscience, and he would seek their advice. And one of the Puritans that he went to was Thomas Goodwin, and after Marshall spilled his guts to Goodwin, he was flabbergasted to hear Goodwin respond, you've forgotten to mention your worst sin of all, not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and sanctify your nature. So that's the whole sermon in a nutshell. If you uh, let me repeat it. Kids, when your dad asks you what the sermon was about, here it is. You've forgotten to mention your worst sin of all, not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to sanctify your nature. And that answer shocked Pastor Marshall. It hit him like a ton of bricks that he'd been trying to make his dealings with God depend on how well he was doing spiritually. He'd been trying to make his peace depend on his own personal righteousness. And as a result, he realized he had not been submitting to God's righteousness in Christ, that free gift that the Reformation had discovered that had revived so many souls, that had reformed so many churches. He had not been submitting to God's righteousness in Christ, so he resolved to give more of his attention to studying Christ, to preaching Christ, and when he shifted his focus back to Christ and the good news of the gospel in Christ Jesus, lo and behold, he found peace of conscience. 
He found joy in the Holy Spirit. He found a fresh zeal for holiness and Christ-likeness. And he found that his congregation also found those things. The answer to his problem is distilled in Galatians 2, verse 20. How do I know that? <laughs> because Order Marshall wrote a whole book about this, which is still in print. You can get it. It's called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. Uh, but take a look at a closer look at Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, what had sparked this comment? It was this problem in uh, the church in Antioch. Uh, Peter also known as Cephas. Cephas is just the Aramaic way you say Peter. Peter is the Greek way you say Cephas. And it means, and the English way is rock. That's what that name means. It was the name that Jesus, the nickname that Jesus had given to Peter. Well, when Peter came, he had joined in the fellowship. Uh, the church in Antioch, and you can read about it in Acts, start in Acts 13 and just continue. And you can see how uh, God had saved Jews, had come uh, from a Jewish background to embrace Christ and follow the Christ who was revealed all through the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but then he began saving Gentiles as well. And, and so you had Jews and Gentiles mixed together in this congregation. And there were practical problems, uh, but, but the people were solving it through the grace of God in Christ. And, and Peter came and he was very excited to see this and he joined in this fellowship. But then another group came from Jerusalem. They claimed to be from James and you can read about them in the book of Acts as well. Uh, they claimed to be representing uh, James and, and the other apostles, uh, but they were teaching a different doctrine and that was the doctrine that you need to, uh, you Gentiles need to be circumcised and submit yourselves to the Old Testament uh, laws of Moses, the system of Moses, in order to be acceptable to God and in order to be acceptable to one another. Well, Peter never really adopted that doctrine, but he did withdraw his fellowship from the Gentiles. Maybe it was to not offend these other Jewish uh, people who had come, or whatever his motivation, but Paul looked and he saw that this is not in line with the gospel. In fact, it so contradicts the gospel. It's kind of like Peter believed the right thing, he taught the right thing, but by his body language and behavior, he was undermining everything that he believed and taught. And Paul saw it for what it was, and it was such a serious thing that Paul publicly rebuked him, just in a potluck dinner in the in the on a Sunday afternoon, Paul publicly rebuked, I mean, these two great apostles right in front of the whole congregation. But what was at stake was the truth of the gospel. And from the whole rest of the Bible, including the writings of Peter, you realize that Peter humbly received that rebuke and he, and he repented and, and the church proceeded in unity. And later there was the Jerusalem council which settled at once for all. Uh, for the entire church. But this was, Paul was speaking to Peter uh, when he said these words, and he basically said, if I undermine the gospel and if I sin, 
It's not because the gospel has caused me to sin. It's because I have caused myself to sin. I proved myself to be a transgressor. But here's, what I, here's the fact of life for a Christian. Listen again to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there are two main points, each with two subpoints. And the first main point is this, as we look at this verse. Jesus Christ himself rescues sinners because of his sheer grace. The Christian faith is a rescue religion. It's not a system of do's and don'ts, say you follow these steps and you can get yourself right with God. It's not even follow these steps in reliance on God and you can get yourself right with God with His help. It's not that. It's, no, you need to be rescued and Jesus Christ is the only one who can rescue you. And He rescues us, first of all, there's, here's the first sub-point of the two, He rescues us, first of all, by purchasing salvation for us. So look, at, look closely at Galatians 2.20. At the very end, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So who is the one who loves? It's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the sovereign of the universe. He added to himself a human nature, became incarnate, uh, became flesh in order to seek and to save the lost, in order to rescue sinners. And he's Christ. He's the anointed one. He is anointed to be the prophet, priest, and king of those whom he rescues. Why did he do it? Because of his great love, his sovereign love. The Son of God loved me. Who does Jesus love? Me. Weak, broken, rebellious, sinful, untrustworthy me. Think Say that about yourself, and you can think the worst, stuff that you're not willing to admit to anybody else and maybe not even to yourself. God knows it better than you do. The Lord Jesus knows it better than you do. And because of His grace, you can say, the Son of God loved me. And how does He show His love? He gave Himself for me. The one who knew no sin gave himself to die as a sin offering. He was crucified on the cross. The source of infinite blessedness gave himself to suffer under God's infinite wrath in our place, to suffer under God's curse, the curse that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserved. He gave himself to suffer in our place. That's how he showed his love. And notice how personal his love and atoning work are. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Because the Lord wants you to be able to say that. And the Lord invites you to say that. Jesus says, come to me so that you can say that. So, sub-point number one, Jesus rescues us by purchasing salvation for us. Number two, Jesus rescues us by bringing that salvation that he's purchased to bear on us. He applies it to us. He makes it ours. So, notice two things as you look, keep looking at Galatians 2.20. 
First of all, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified. I have been crucified. This has already happened. It's not something that is happening. It's not something that will happen. It's something that has happened and still is having an impact. It's not something that God calls you to do. He doesn't say, crucify yourself. It's something that has been done to you, something that God Himself has done to you through the gospel. And it's not a command. It's a statement telling you something that's true about you if you're following Jesus in faith. It's not something that you're supposed to do. It's something that if you're in Christ has already happened to you. It's been done to you. It's true about you. I have been crucified with Christ. Well, how did that happen? Look at the middle of verse 16. Same chapter. Chapter 2, verse 16. We also have believed in Jesus Christ, literally into Jesus Christ. Now, the most common expression the Apostle Paul uses to describe what it means to be a Christian is in Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus in faith, you are in Christ. That means that when you believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, when you entrust yourself to Him, the triune God of Christ supernaturally connects you uh, to Jesus Christ. He unites you to Jesus Christ. You are in union with Christ. And this union with Christ has two aspects, or you can look at it from two different angles. And the first angle is this. On the one hand, it has a legal aspect. And this means that God counts Jesus Christ's atoning death as yours. You can say, I have been crucified with Christ. God counts Christ's righteous record as yours. This verse doesn't say it explicitly, but you can say, I have lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. Because it count, Christ's righteousness counts as yours by grace. In this legal aspect of the sinner's union with Christ, God imputes Christ's righteousness, His perfection, to those sinners who trust Him. But on the other hand, this union with Christ also has a, 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 a living aspect, a vital aspect. A, it's a dynamic life union. It's a supernatural bond that the Holy Spirit creates. And it's so, so real and so strong that it makes you like a branch in the vine. In this vital aspect of the sinner's union with Christ, God imparts Christ's power to them. He doesn't just count Christ's perfection as yours when you trust Jesus as Savior, but it, He also imparts Christ's power to you when you trust Jesus as Savior. So that, first of all, you're born again. You're born from above. You become a new creature in Christ. And there's a new principle at work in you. And not only are you in Christ, but also look again at Galatians 2.20 and notice, secondly, that Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. See, that fact undergirds all Christian living. This is what Jesus himself also taught. In John 14, Jesus said, I, won't, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He had been explaining to the disciples that he was going to leave. They didn't understand. They said, no, don't go. If you go, take us with you. And if you won't take us with you, tell us how to follow you. 
But Jesus said, <coughs> excuse me, yet a little while and the world will see no, me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, that is the day of Pentecost, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. On that day when the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit, He came to dwell in His people by means of the Holy Spirit. Or Galatians, or Colossians, rather, 1 verse 27. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. How can Christ live in you? Romans 8 9 tells us the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the agent who mediates Christ's presence to you, who realizes Christ's presence in you. And this is what Jesus told us to expect back in John 14, verse 17. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. How did they know the Holy Spirit was with them? Because Jesus was with them. And by the Holy Spirit, Jesus would be in them. And that helps us make sense of John 16, verse 7, part of that same upper room discourse. Jesus was, was helping to prepare them for his crucifixion and then for his ascension. And he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, You're better off uh, that he goes away, that he ascends to heaven, and you're better off because he sent his Holy Spirit to serve as his agent. Uh, uh, to mediate and to realize His presence. Christ Jesus Himself comes to us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so the first main point is Jesus Himself rescues sinners because of His sheer grace. The second main point is this. Jesus Christ's res rescue of us is the double cure for all our sins. Jesus Christ's rescue is the double cure of all our sins, which brings us back to Pastor Marshall's struggle. And again, two sub-points. Look at Galatians 2.20 and notice two things. Both Christ lives in me and I now live in the flesh. The life I now live, I now live in the flesh. And here's the great enigma of the Christian life. Christ lives in you, Galatians 2.20, and you now live in the flesh, Galatians 2.20, or as Romans 7.20 puts it, sin lives in you. Christ lives in you, and sin lives in you. Remember, Pastor Marshall and his people had come to Christ, but they were struggling with sin, and that made them wonder if they could really be Christians. How can we really be Christians if we still have such a struggle with sin? And the more Pastor Marshall preached God's holy standards to them, the more defeated they all felt. But if Christ lives in you, and at the same time sin lives in you, then you shouldn't be surprised that there's such a struggle. That's exactly what you should expect. That's what Jesus taught you to expect, and that's what your experience tells you that you should expect. 
And the reason is sin used to be your owner, but now Christ is your owner. We've got a friend who just bought a house for himself and his bride-to-be, but there were people renting uh, the home, and now they're refusing to get out. They don't, that's what the remaining sin in our lives is like. Sin is still a squatter. It doesn't have any right to be there, but it's working hard not to be evicted. And it's no wonder that there's such a struggle. Christ lives in me, and I now live in the flesh. Christ lives me, in me, and sin lives in me. And Christ is making war against your flesh, and your flesh is making war against Christ. And the Holy Spirit of Christ is making war against your flesh, and your flesh is making war against the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, and because we are being transformed, that means that we are changing. And that means that we are actively involved in this war. Because to be changed, we must change. And because Christ is changing us, we are changing. And because we are changing, we are now trying, by His grace, to kill remaining sin and to cultivate the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or as the Puritans like to say, we're striving to mortify sin, that is to put it to death, and to vivify grace, that is to, cultify, to cultivate the graces of the Holy Spirit. But, and so we have this struggle, this war uh, between Christ and our flesh, between the Holy Spirit and our flesh, and this battle is too much for us. We're too weak, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are too strong, which is why, and this is the second sub-point, the whole while that we say, I now live in the flesh, we at the same time need to say, and look, look again at, Gal at Gal Galatians 2 verse 20, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I live in the flesh, this ongoing walk, day after day walk, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith is more than just intellectual assent. This is one of the great problems in the Christian community in North America, is that for over a century, faith has been taught as intellectual assent. If you just say, I, you raise your hand, you walk the sawdust trail, uh, you affirm, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner and Jesus is the only Savior and I trust Him to be my Savior, just like a transaction. Not really entrusting yourself to Jesus, but just affirming. Well, so many have taught that that's what faith is, just making that affirmation without any connection to Jesus Christ, that supernatural connection. But the Apostle Paul says, or the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, no, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith is trusting in Christ. It's entrusting yourself to Christ. It's relying on Christ. It's ongoing. I live, that's day by day, that's moment by moment, that's step by step. It's personal. I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith in the Son of God is trusting the Son of God Himself. Not just trusting what He has done and believing that it is true, but entrusting yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just ascending to a right set of beliefs. It includes that, but it's not just that. It's not just committing to a right uh, set of behaviors. It will produce that, but it's more than that. It's not just committing 
uh, to the right institution, joining the right church or hanging out with the right group of people or trying to make the right changes in your life. No, the only, only one who can save you is a supernatural person. You need to be rescued, and the only one who can rescue you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to be rescued both from the guilt of your sin, that liability to punishment, and the power of your sin, that ongoing struggle that uh, continues to squat in you and fight against Christ and the Holy Spirit. Being a first-hand Christian means having a living connection to the living Son of God. Make sure you get that. Being a, a first-hand Christian means having a living connection to the living Son of God, which means that the Christian life is not only ongoing, it means that it's not only personal, but also it's dependent. I live by faith. Or in other words, I am living step by step by ongoing trust. Remember how Jesus pictured this in, in John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in Christ, or you can't produce fruit. How do you abide in Christ? We'll keep looking at Galatians 2.20. I live by faith. I live by ongoing trust. As a branch draws its strength and sustenance from the vine, if there's no connection between the branch and the vine, there's no life in the branch. There's no fruit. Or a lot of you have gardens. You raise tomatoes, and, and sometimes you cut off the suckers so that the, the plants with the, with the blossoms and the fruit on it will or so that the, the branches with the blossoms and the fruit on it will get more sustenance. And then when you cut off that sucker and you throw it down on the ground, it's dead. It's not going to produce any fruit. It has no connection uh, to the vine. If there's a connection, though, with a branch that does have blossoms and fruit, then there's vitality, there's life, there's sustenance, there's fruit. And Jesus says, that's how it is with you and me, with you and Jesus. You draw your spiritual strength and sustenance from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus continues in John 15, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do you abide in Christ? You do so by keeping up what I like to call spiritual breathing. Keep breathing in God's words. Keep breathing out your prayers. Keep breathing in God's words. Keep breathing out your prayers. Or in more traditional terms, you abide in Christ by diligently using the means of grace. Continue your intake of Scripture and the sacraments, which is Scripture put into a tangible form. And you breathe out your prayers and praises of response. Diligently use the means of grace. So in summary, first of all, Jesus himself rescues sinners because of his sheer grace. And secondly, his rescue is the double cure for all our sins. So now can you see why Galatians 2 verse 20 gave the answer to Pastor Walter Marshall for his struggle? Because in it, God shows 
that in Christ he changes your status and at the same time in Christ he changes you. He changes your status from sinful and condemned to righteous and blessed forever and at the same time he changes you. But just like Pastor Marshall and just like his flock, we tend to be quick to think, God must really hate me. He knows my brokenness. He knows my failures. He knows my sin. He knows how far behind I've gotten. He knows I can never fix this. He must really hate me. I don't know if you've struggled with that, but I struggle with that. Pastor Marshall struggled with that. His congregation struggled with that. I think all Christians at some point or other struggle with that. And if you don't think it up yourself, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is happy to whisper it into your ears. He's very quick to do exactly that. God must hate you because look how, how much you mess up, how far short you fall of his holy standards. But through this scripture, God himself says to you, no, my dear child, I love you. I love you with a love that is from everlasting to everlasting, a love that never did depend upon you, a love that never will depend upon you. All your weakness, all your brokenness, all your sin, all your failure, all your mess-ups, that's exactly what draws me to you in mercy and grace and compassion. And I've taken all your failure and I've nailed it to the cross and buried it in the tomb, taken away from you as far as the east is from the west. And I've given you a new identity. You are my own beloved child. And that will never change. Why not? Because God is not basing it on your work, on, not on what you've accomplished or what you might accomplish. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. It depends on His sovereign grace. And God is basing it on the perfect work of His only begotten Son, whom you trust. Where you keep failing, Jesus has perfectly succeeded once and for all. And He succeeded for you. This means that your status will never change because of what you do or what you fail to do, because Jesus Himself has secured the status of God's redeemed, forgiven, accepted child for you. But it also means that even though your status will never change, your desires will. Think of these two illustrations. An unborn baby breathes water. Well, amniotic fluid, but for our purposes, just think of it as water. And that unborn child is perfectly content with that because that's the design at that phase. But when that child is born and cries and breathes air, it's no longer natural for that child to breathe water. It's, it's possible. I'm speaking as a swimmer who has slipped up a, a once or twice <laughs> and accidentally breathed water, but it's not natural. And you're not just going to continue doing it. You won't be happy uh, doing it. And so it is with sin. We used to breathe sin. It was our, it was the, it was our atmosphere. But... It's no longer natural to us because we've been born again. We've been born from above. We're new creatures in Christ. And we're not designed uh, to breathe sin anymore, but to breathe righteousness. Or another illustration. Picture a teenage boy. And he doesn't care that much about how he appears or how 
clean his room is or how he smells. His dad says to him, son, uh, why don't you take a shower? But he just shrugs and says, meh. And his dad says, well, can't you at least put on some deodorant? But the boy says, meh. And his mom says, well, how about picking up the clothes that's all over your bedroom floor and putting it in the hamper so, so I can wash it and you can at least have some clean clothes? And the boy says, meh. But then one day he's at school and, and across the room there's a girl and their eyes meet and she smiles at him and his heart melts. And all of a sudden he goes straight home and hops in the shower, puts on deodorant, picks up his dirty clothes and throws them in the hamper. What, what's the difference? It was a new affection. In fact, there's a, there's a famous sermon from a Scottish pastor of centuries ago, uh, Thomas Chalmers, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And, and he was talking about how when, when Christ comes into your life, your desires change uh, so that you now what you, the sins that once you were addicted to, you now don't want anymore. You're not happy with them anymore. You're trying to get rid of them. But it's even more than that. Not only do your desires change because of Jesus, but also your ability changes because of Jesus. Where you are weak and helpless, the Lord gives you access to his own supernatural power. As we sang earlier, Jesus is of sin, the double cure. On the one hand, he cleanses you from sin's guilt. On the other hand, he cleanses you from sin's power. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He's a Savior who really saves. And God's salvation in Christ is free, and at the same time, it's full. God's salvation in Christ is free. Uh, it's without money and without price. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And God's salvation is a full salvation. He will carry on to completion the good work that he has begun in you. And so as you trust the living Christ whose work for you gives you the perfect right standing before God, the same living Christ dwells in you to give you strength so that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today or yesterday. Tomorrow can be new because you are new. You're a new creature in Christ, and Christ's mercies are new every morning. And that means that day after day, you can have fresh forgiveness. You can be sure that God loves you forever with an infinite love, because in a sovereign grace, He has connected you and united you to Jesus Christ. And that means that you can also make fresh starts. It means that as uh, even though you've messed up, you can, you can have a fresh start and, and many fresh starts. You can start over and over again because it depends on God's grace in Jesus, not on you. And it means that as God's beloved child, you can have fresh strength. He gives you strength for the battle. So in Christ, you have fresh forgiveness, you have fresh starts, you have fresh strength day after day. So I come back to that question, have you come to Christ for salvation? Please don't leave here without being able to say yes to that question. Ask the Lord to enable you uh, to be able to say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and I've entrusted myself to him for now and forever.
And when you answer yes to that question, then you can know, number one, that Christ is for you. He loved you and gave himself for you. And you can know, number two, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Christ for you and Christ in you. Jesus Christ is of sin, the double cure. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Oh, living and true God, how we thank you that even though we uh, continue to fall short day after day, even as those who have been redeemed and have forgiven and have received many blessings, indeed every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, yet we continue to fall short and we continue to have that struggle. And it seems that the more we grow in grace, the more we realize that that struggle is even wider and deeper than we ever imagined uh, so that we continue to have to fight against sin and we continue to need you to rescue us. And so we pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that we would experience you as sin's double cure, cleansing us not only from its guilt so that we have fresh forgiveness, but also from its power so that we make fresh starts and we have fresh strength to persevere in following you. We ask these things uh, because of your sovereign grace in Jesus Christ our Savior, applied by the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's continue to rely on our Lord in prayer by singing together hymn 676, day by day and with each passing moment. Let's stand together as we sing. <laughs>